Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Welcome to this study for our Tuesday night service here at Calvary Monterey. I'm Pastor Jeff Buck, one of the assisting pastors here at this church, and I am filling in for our pastor this evening. Many of you have been following through Pastor Nate's study in the wonderful book of Genesis. Genesis is an interesting book, and it's one that critics have loved to pan and criticize and say, well, you know, it couldn't have happened like that. It's just a bunch of fables and all of that, just stories and not of any great help to a scientific mind. Well, actually, the book of Genesis, as our pastor has been taking us through it, is a critical book to understand so many things of our Judaic history, the foundations of the coming of the Messiah. I mean, there's just so much in it. But I would like to go back uh, into things that Nate has already covered and bring some things out that he didn't have time to do as he's done the survey of Genesis here. The theme of my message tonight is God walks with man in Genesis. God relating to walking with people in Genesis. It's always astounded me how relational God is, how devoted to man God is. And even after the fall in Genesis 3, immediately you see the wheels of redemption turning and how God is determined to get a right relationship with man going through the sacrifice, first of all, of animals under the Mosaic system and then the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, for example, Genesis 3.8, we read these words, and theologians love to argue about this. Well, did the Lord really appear, or was it a... Uh, and, and people just love to argue about this stuff rather than just take it with childlike faith and say, what does this say to me? Look at this Genesis 3.8, which says, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's fantastic. So they are in a relationship with God where God is is heard walking in the cool of the evening in the garden and they hide. The point is the Lord God relating to walking with, loving, communicating with his created man and woman. God loving to fellowship with his own. We all know the story of Adam and Eve and the breaking of that uh, relationship and the coming of sin and all of that. And that's the redemptive story is often, often spoken. But take take out of it from the book of Genesis how much God loves to be with his people. And then we go all the way to the book of Revelation, and there are a lot of correlations between Genesis and Revelation, the first things and the final things. But in this wonderful little passage in, I just read this uh, the other day at at the room of someone who's dying, uh, in uh, Revelation 21, beautiful passage. And he says, John says, and I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no more sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here's the beautiful verse, Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now the throne is where God is. So someone right next to God apparently is speaking in a loud voice saying these words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. You notice there, if you followed along, that the word with occurs three times in one sentence. God is with man. Dwell with them. God will be with them. And verse 4 has always blessed my heart. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God with a handkerchief wiping the tears of his saints as he meets them one by one. Wipes away every tear. Death will be no more. And then four other things pass away. This is by the by. The by. No more mourning, crying, or pain for the former things have gone away. Death, mourning, crying, pain are all gone. But the point is, God brings the new Jerusalem down to earth to man, and the dwelling place of God is with man. So there's something about this God, now going back to Genesis, that shows us God's relational nature, if I can put it that way. And of course, the highest revelation of God we see in the book of John, 118 times God is mentioned as our Father. And so God is so relational. So I began to think about this theme, and I thought, okay, let me pick out some of the men that God walked with in the book of Genesis and examine how God related to them in the Old Testament time and how much more, of course, God can relate to us now that Christ and the Holy Spirit are living within us. The Father is, has opened the treasures of his storehouse to the Son who, who by the Holy Spirit shows us all these wonderful things that we now have. But I, I picked out, just by my own thinking, five men that are perfect examples of this God wanting to walk with men. So first of all, there's Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, five key men with whom God just enters their lives and begins to communicate and change them and establish the godly line of the Jewish people from which Jesus will ultimately come. Let's take a look at Noah. Everybody knows about Noah. And in chapter 6 of Genesis, we read these words. And I'm just picking bits and pieces out of these, these lives, these five lives. But they will serve to show how God wanted to have a relationship with them. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 6. After seeing the wickedness of man... It says, and the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out 
man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. I mean, what a tragic statement. Verse 8, but, however, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He looks at this whole earth and says, I, I got no use for this. Man or beast, no, none are walking in the way that I want, except there's this, there's this man, Noah. And Noah finds favor. Favor is one of the happy, beautiful concepts, Genesis Revelation, that you can study about how God favors us and then releases in us the kind of living and character and ability that allows him then to bless our lives with his favor, touch our lives to where it's obvious that God is with us. And then in 13 through 18, here's the plan. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, chilling. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the, all the earth. But here's your instructions, Noah, because you're my guy. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch to waterproof it. 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, the, the width, 50, and the height, 30. So that's 450 feet long. That's a, a football field and a half. Uh, 45 feet wide. And uh, what is it? F 50 cubits, so that's uh, 65 feet wide, 75 feet wide, and then 50 feet high. This is a, this is a big, big boat in a place where there's really no, no water. Make a roof of the ark, finish it to a cubit above, and he, he gives them all the directions on how to make this ark. And then in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. There was something about this man, Noah, that he had a heart for God. And we know that it took between 50 and 75 years for this ark to be built. Now, I'm 66 years old. So I picture a project that Noah works on for as long as I've been alive. And uh, it's interesting that First Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. So obviously, he's, he's building this 450-foot-long boat that the people are asking, well, what are you doing? What is happening here? And he has decades to declare the faithfulness of God and also the judgment of God. Judgment is coming. And I'm sure he would have been willing to take other people on the boat, but there were no takers. Only eight souls in total made it through the almost year uh, on the ark during that flood. But the point being, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Here's a man, something about whom just blessed the heart of God. And so in the middle of judging and pouring out his uh, prescribed flood upon the earth, he just cannot think about this one man perishing. And so he and his wife and their three married sons 
make it through. There's a relational God choosing a man, entering this, uh, this, this mankind that he's created and establishing a covenant relationship with him and saving him through the flood. The second man is so special and really one of my favorites in scripture, and that's Abraham. And if you go over to, in Genesis, the 11th chapter, you have a, just a little bit about Abraham's life. He's living a thousand miles east of the promised land, as we call it now. He's living in uh, Ur of the Chaldees, so he's in the, the ancient eastern civilization. And um, in 11 and 24, we read these words. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. This is Abraham's family line. Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then he goes through and talks about the generations of these men. But the specific thing is now he names this man Abram, whose name that we, we definitely recognize. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, one of the most dramatic verses actually in the Old Testament where God is, is going to enter a covenant relationship with man to establish a lineage that we call the Jewish people from which a distant figure called the Messiah or the seed, the coming one, will come. Abraham, Abram has no idea. His father, Terah, was an idol worshiper. We know that from the book of Joshua. And, um, but the Lord speaks to Abram in chapter 12, verse 1. And so don't, don't gloss over the fact that it says, and the Lord said to Abram. So when a man is chosen or a woman is chosen by God, one of the things that begins to happen is God speaks to them. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, leave everything behind to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, and you're going to see four covenant blessings here that are imparted to this man, Abram. I will make of you a great nation. And he is a childless man. At, at the moment, he has, he has no, no posterity. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I mean, this is just getting higher and higher and higher, this, this, this massive blessing that's being proclaimed. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just out of nowhere, God chooses this man and says, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make you the standard of, of righteousness in all the earth so people are going to need to relate to you correctly. Great name, great nation, great land, and a great blessing. All with this man that... God just unilaterally chooses. That is, it is one of the great intrusions into history, biblical history, is God 
choosing Abram. And it says in verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And he leaves everything. Now he's taking care of his nephew Lot. But it says Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now remember, they're going west. They're going north and then west and then down into this nation that we now know as Israel. Abraham didn't know about this, but he, he, he just keeps going until the Lord later on shows him, this is the land I'm going to give you. And they come to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. It's so interesting how oaks and trees are oftentimes uh, markers used in Scripture. And these oaks are very similar to the California oaks that we have here. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now look at verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abram. What was that like? What did that look like? other than being something that would trip you out, flip you out. The Lord appeared to Abram, a relational God, a relationship with the man. And he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word there for offspring is, is, is singular. So not to the long line of his descendants, but there's going to be a, an offspring a man, a person, that ultimately I'll, out of all of your offspring, I'll give this land to. That would be the Lord Jesus. So what does he do after this wonderful experience of the Lord appearing to him? He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, verse 7. And then from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord. And it says he called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, which is in the south. So north to south, Abraham is, is looking at this land that God himself has said, I will give it to you. You left everything to receive everything. And so Abraham journeys on and he's looking around the land. Then we go to chapter 13. A little more about this wonderful man, Abraham, or Abram. So he sojourns in Egypt. Some other interesting, difficult things happen. But in 13.1, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev, which is the southern desert of Israel. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He had been blessed by God. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first place. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He developed this affinity for God and he knew God as a single God, not the multiple gods that his fathers had worshipped. And he calls upon the name of this God that he is getting to know. All kinds of difficult things happen, but down in verse 14, again, the Lord said to Abram, 
Now, was that an external voice? Was that an internal voice? Something in the heart? We don't know. But when it says the Lord said, he communicated with Abram in such a way that Abram could write this down, tell his descendants about it. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place that you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, Abram, all the land that you see, I will give it to you and to your offspring forever. And I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. This it was, like, I'm sure, like a dream to Abram. All these blessings and promises and directives that he's receiving from God. And so in 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, this precious land that we know as Israel, for I will give it to you. Beautiful. But again, the, the main point here is think of God choosing a man to be, of course, the, the founder of the Jewish nation, so, so to speak. But God relating and walking with man. And periodically, Abram would stop and call upon his name. And periodically, God would simply show up and speak his promises of the great name, the great nation, the great land, and a great blessing. It's Abraham's relationship with God that blows my mind. I remember years ago, a pastor sharing Isaiah 41.8. I could quote it to you, but I would like to read it. And um, in this idea of God walking with man, listen to this in Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Amazing. Abraham, my friend. I think of those three words, how God is speaking through Isaiah. That he's going to do, yet do things after the judgment of Isaiah 1 through 39, the first 39 chapters. Then chapter 40 begins with the words, comfort, comfort, my people. But here, God is speaking out. He chose Israel, chose Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Man, I would love God to say that of me, Jeff, my friend. And Jesus in, in John 14 and 15, 16, talks about the fact that we are God's friends. We are Jesus' friends if we do what he commands. But the idea of Abraham being named by God. Oh yeah, he's a friend. Speaking further, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, speaking of the Jewish people, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. And a passage that I heard a pastor speak about years ago that I, I never forgot the, this is kind of a, again, a little sidelight here. Never forgot these words, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you 
with my righteous right hand. I went to this conference and the pastor took this verse, Isaiah 41.10, and he spent one session talking about how God strengthens, another session about how God helps, and another session how God upholds. It, it was beautiful. It was, it was a rich meal for me. I, I've always remembered it. But the basics here is Abraham, my friend. I, I love that. Now, back to Genesis, to the third person that I see as specially chosen by God as he wants to walk with man. We've seen Noah, Abraham, and now Isaac in chapter 26. So Abraham's son, Isaac, also has a special relationship with God, chosen by God. And so in 26.1, there's a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Now, again, don't skip this. The Lord appeared to him. Personal relationship with God. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. God promising this, I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, multiplying your offspring as the stars of the sky. And um, in your offspring, singular in your offspring, the coming Messiah, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... Now we're gonna get a little insight again to Abraham, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Second man was Abraham. This third man is Abraham's son, Isaac. Sometimes it is stated that Isaac was like a saddle or a lower spot between two mountainous peaks. Uh, Abraham and Jacob were more striking characters. But here it says the Lord appears to him. Isaac seemed to be a more kind of a routine kind of guy, not quite so striking in his uh, demeanor. And yet, as a son of Abraham and a father of the coming child Jacob, he was blessed by God. You know, it's interesting how God can bless very natural, normal people. Not everybody is like a, a superstar. Not everybody uh, is like a rock star. Not everybody. But this guy, Isaac, out of his own relationship with his father and then God, was deeply, deeply blessed. And we see in verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land, so that that land where God had told him to stay, he sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now that's a good return for crops. He sowed in the land a hundredfold he received, and the Lord blessed him. Now that's a wonderful thing. The blessing of God, the touch of God, the strength of God, in a New Testament sense, the anointing of God. 
the obvious walking with a man that happens here, it, it's just obvious. The Lord blessed him. The man became rich, gained more and more until he became very wealthy in possessions and flocks and herds and all kinds of things. And so the neighbors there, the Philistines, they are flipped out that this guy's doing so well in their midst. So, you know, they do whatever they can to, um, <laughs> to, to kind of resist uh, Isaac. And then in 16, it finally says, Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You, you are much mightier than we. Now, he's the new kid on the block, but he's being blessed by the promise of God. And so he's just too strong for them, they say. Get out of there. So Isaac departed from there and settled in the valley of Gerar and, and again settled there. The, the touch of God on his life is magnificent. And in this particular case, it's manifested in the fact that he appears to Isaac, but also he just blesses the work of his hands, blesses his labors, and he's surviving in a beautiful way in a time of famine. But then we get to verse 23. He has all these struggles with Abimelech and all these the Philistines and so on. So he, he travels and he, he goes to another place. Verse 23, Genesis 26. From there, he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night. I love that. I, I just wish I knew what that looked like. Obviously, God shows up. Uh, theologians love to argue about it. Was it a theophany or what, what was this thing? The Lord appeared to him that same night and said these words, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Again, a, a shout out to Abraham. For his sake, Isaac, son of Abraham, for his sake and for all that he meant to me, my friend Abraham, I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abram's sake. And verse 25, so Isaac built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This this building of an altar, this memorializing an encounter with God, saying, this is so precious to me. I'm going to build an altar. This is going to remain here. It's always going to remind me and the people who know about this that God interacts with me. God interacts with people. God is a people God. So five men, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. In chapter 31, we get a little glimpse of Jacob. Jacob has been kind of a conniving, cheating kind of guy, cheats his brother out of the inheritance and all these things. And as we've followed Nate through Genesis, we will have gotten the basic story of Jacob. But uh, in, after a lot of these problems and situations and you know, Jacob getting a, a wife in, back in um, Ur of the Chaldees, it says in Genesis 31, 3, and you notice that when the Lord wants to change a person's direction, he appears, he speaks. 
31.3, and the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. In other words, you've been sojourning in the place that Abraham originally came from. Now go back to Canaan, the land of Abraham. Return to the land of your fathers, and these words, what a promise, I will be with you. Now, this is not an easy thousand mile journey up the, the waters of the Euphrates and then back down toward the Mediterranean. Not an easy journey, it's a long journey, and especially if you're bringing uh, f flocks and herds and crops and all kinds of stuff, not a, a simple thing. But he says, I will be with you. That's one of the greatest promises a man could ever have, that God would walk with me. It's like a little kid holding onto the hand of a giant can walk through any neighborhood he wants because of this giant he has with him. I remember in my own church years ago, a man came up to me and uh, was so angry with me. And he was shouting at me in the, the center aisle of the, of the church. And I thought, oh man, um, I've never been in a fight before. I am about to get decked. And it was the funniest thing because I felt a big belly behind me press into my back, some big, massive person. And then I, I heard these words, and I, I'm sure I've told this story before. I heard these words, Pastor, I've got your back. Pastor, I've got your back. This guy was like six feet six, 325 pounds, um, Harley Davidson guy. But I, my fear just melted away because I knew who was with me. And he, he got me out of that situation. Well, so much better to be able to say, from God, I will be with you. Beautiful. And so down in verse 11, we have another angelic uh, situation here. In verse 11, then the angel of God says to me in this dream, and, and Jacob recounts this dream, Jacob, here I am. Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled, because I've seen all that, that Laban is doing to you. I wish I had time to go and explain all of that, but verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Notice how God remembered the encounter at Bethel years before, where Jacob anoints a rock and says, I, I count this like the house of God and named the place Bethel because God spoke to him there. He called it house of God. And again, this relational God leading these men and women uh, through their lives. I, I just find it so fascinating how relational God is. In chapter 32, 25, we get a little bit further in this whole story and as some of you will remember from uh, following through with Nadan, the story about Jacob wrestling with an angel, wrestling with God, and his desire um, 
to know God better and to be blessed by God. And he's, he's wrestling with someone that he finds out is, is the angel of God or a, a theophany, an appearance of God. In 32:25, when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, he's gotten into this thing, this understanding of the blessing of God has been promised to him. He didn't bargain for it, didn't even really ask for it. But here he says, I don't want to let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, your name, says this theophany or this angel, this appearance from God. 28, he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, which means cheater or supplanter, but Israel, for you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. Jacob says, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? There he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. An encounter with God, relationship with God, blessing of God. In, back in the Old Testament, these special people that we, we read about and study today who had such an amazing Old Testament relationship with God. Just a couple other things on him that it, it just... I find it so beautiful. In 3320, he, he demonstrates his heart for God after this encounter with God. And in 3320, he buys a piece of property, builds an altar there, builds a home there. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Israel was his name. And so he is saying, you, God, you are my God. You are the God of me, of Israel. It's one thing to just be, to be blessed by God and to take that relationship with him for granted. That's not what this man did. He built an altar, called on God, and accepted that new name and, and, and said, God, he is the God of Israel and of all that come after me. 35.1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so he does that. And in verse 9, one final appearance, God appeared to Jacob again, in 35.9, when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And he, he reiterates this promise. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. Overwhelming promises. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give you the land to your offspring after you. And look at verse 13. Then God went up from him in the place where he'd spoken. 
God went up from him. An interview with God. That then God, after he speaks, it just says, he went up from him. Fabulous. One final person. Noah, so special, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But for many of us, we really love Joseph. And in the 39th chapter of Genesis, we see this fifth and final man that I've simply chosen to be emblematic of. God walking with people in this tremendous book. In uh, Genesis 39, one through six, Joseph had been brought down as a slave to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden, Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. You will remember that uh, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt and he winds up in prison and so on. But look at verse two. The Lord was with Joseph. There's a the formula for success. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, though he was a slave. He was in the house of the Egyptian master. And I love verse three. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands and these beautiful words. So Joseph found favor in his sight, even in his captivity, even in his servitude in this house. He's, he's obviously has an extra special something which was God's blessing. And so he finds favor in the sight of his boss. He attended him. His uh, overseer made him overseer of the house, put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time he made Joseph overseer in his house and over all he had, <laughs> the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food he ate. What an amazing picture of God stepping into a man. But, you know, uh, the master's wife accuses him of sexually assaulting her and so on. So, you know, what, what's been going really well all of a sudden tanks because he's thrown into prison unjustly. But again, 3921, the Lord was with Joseph. And it's so interesting that Joseph being thrown into jail, the first thing it says about him was the Lord was with him. This is one of the things we all struggle with is if the Lord is with me, why did I just get thrown into jail? If the Lord is with me, why did I just have to declare bankruptcy or why am I sick or whatever it is? But the Lord was with Joseph, showed him the steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And this is the rerun of the previous uh, situation. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, every single one of them. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. This man that is walking with God. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, 
the Lord made it succeed. There's so much you could say out of that. This is God walking with a man for a purpose, which we'll see unfolded in the final verse here in a, in a second in Genesis 45. We see God walking with a man and we see the blessing of God causing favor and non-godly people looking at Joseph and saying, there's something about you. There's something extra special about you. And it's this Lord that you talk about. And so they just give him free reign. But I think it's interesting to point out that what this produced for Joseph was a whole lot of work. <laughs> and one of the things you learn about the touch and the blessing of God is it creates situations of a lot of work for you. As God touches your life, steps into your life, you begin to humble yourself and see him move in you. It doesn't mean that you're gonna sit around lazy and eat bonbons and, and not do anything, but it's the influence that God gives you. It's the positions of authority that God gives you that give then God a situation where to move in and to produce an impact for his own name. Beautiful. I and mean, there's so much you could say about Joseph, but this, this one final verse I'd like to look at. In Genesis 45, this is the point of the whole story, and that was unknown to Joseph until the end. We know that a famine occurs, that Joseph's uh, family, uh, who have sold him into slavery, begin to come down, try to buy food in Egypt, and there's Joseph. There's their brother, whom they don't recognize. He, he's not even in their thinking. And uh, he's the number two guy now to Pharaoh. They don't realize that this brother that they dumped, that they uh, rejected, was loved by God. That he walked with God. And they're going to see him again. And so in Genesis 45, verse 5, and now speaking to his brothers to whom he is now revealing himself so kindly, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Just to make a little side comment here, how important it is to avoid bitterness. Joseph could have put these guys through the ringer. He could have had them executed. He could have done all kinds of things. He, he played with them a little bit in the previous chapters. But notice, he says, don't be angry with yourself. He wasn't angry with them. He let bitterness go, how important that is. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine has been in the land two years. There are five more years, there'll be no sowing or plowing or reaping. God sent me, verse seven, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, he's gonna say it again. It was not you who sent me here. He lets them completely off the hook. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, though he's only 30 or so years old, 35, the Lord of all his house, ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and tell my father, come see your son. The point of all this, as I said, is to see how God walks with men in this book of Genesis. So much of the lessons of the new covenant, the new testament, 
are founded in the book of Genesis. But the, the wonderful one today is God injects himself into the broken world to redeem it so that he can hang out and be with man. You know, after I got through kind of studying this and writing down the verses and so on, I, I had a stray thought. And uh, Here was my thought. I wonder which of these men, these five, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, which of these men are also listed? And you could study this out for yourself. How many of them are also occur in the Hall of Faith and the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11? And I wonder, I wonder if they're there or all of them are there. And I went, there's Noah in verse 7, there's Abraham in verse 8, Isaac in verse 20, Jacob in verse 21, and Joseph in Hebrews 11, 22. And you, if you want to go through, you can see the writer of Hebrews, how he described the beauty of their lives. And uh, for example, he says of Noah, God warned him about things not yet seen and prepared an ark to save his family. But the, one of the blessings upon Noah's life was he was shown things that were not yet visible but were dangerous. Anyway, you can study that. It's a great thing. But let me just make uh, some applications here. From the lives of these five people, I love the fact that they had this heart for God and that God led them and brought them through life to save the Jewish people and then to go then prepare the, uh, the, the world for the exodus from Egypt and all of that. But here's the Jewish nation, beautifully founded and expanded by God. What can we learn from these guys and what could we apply out of Noah's life? Very simple application. God can warn us and protect us by faith in the storms of life exactly as he did Noah. God can warn us and protect us by faith for the storms of this life as with Noah. I, I had a friend in Kansas City who read that verse one day of Hebrews eleven seven that Noah was warned by God of things not yet seen. And he had this deep impression from God in the city which he lived in that some difficult times are going to come and as he meditated on it, the Holy Spirit troubled him about the fact that he had four children. Um, and in his particular case, his wife was an RN making very good money. He was making less money as a pastor than she was as a nurse. And he felt that God was warning him that there would be difficult times in society and that this is not for everybody, but for him, that he needed to bring his wife D home center on the kids and raise them. And of course, this was 1969 or 70, and, and the Jesus movement broke out in Kansas City. I lived there then. But um, man, so did social unrest and drugs and, and all these different things. And um, God can warn us as he did with my friend and protect us by faith in the storms of this life. We can have our own instincts from God as to what might be safe for us and, and not safe for us. Everybody's got to look at this life and walk with God through the difficulties of it. But we have the principle here that Noah, with his heart for God, found favor with God. 
and he was warned and he was protected. And he brought those eight people, including myself, into that ark and were safe. That's what I see from Noah, the wonderful walk with God that produced salvation for his family, and he was warned in a head. Abraham, what could we learn from our father Abraham, the friend of God? God wants to initiate things and lead us through life. We could also say God wants to create our story, as he did with Abraham. Abraham's thing was he just followed God. He, he, uh, he had an idol-worshiping father, but he began to have these experiences with God. And he had that one experience. And Genesis 12 is just a, a, a massive, explosive chapter in the scripture. Hey, leave everything, follow me, and you'll be blessed. And a, a wonderful story was created of his life by just being led by God. God wants to do that for you. By his spirit, through scripture, through sound counsel, God wants to lead your life as he did with Abraham and create a story as he did with him. I love John eleven twenty seven, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me like Abraham. What about Isaac? God wants to bless those who call upon him as he did with Isaac. That was one thing that Isaac knew how to do. He knew how to call upon God. And repeatedly it speaks of him doing so, building an altar and call upon God. And we saw how he was blessed a hundredfold, so much so that the neighbor said, you know, you gotta leave, you're too, you're too good, you're too strong. Well, God wants to bless those who call upon him as with Isaac. The blessing on your life will di look different than the blessing on someone else's life, but the blessing, that, th that tangible touch of God so that people look at you and say, there's something about you. There's just, there's a present, there's something. God wants to bless those who humble themselves and call upon his name as with Isaac. And of course, the thing is, when I call upon God's name, I do not take credit for the things that happen. I don't get a, a big head if I get a promotion or whatever. But number three, I can, I can know that God wants to bless as he did with Isaac, me as I call upon his name. Jacob. Jacob was the cheater, the supplanter, the conniver, the one who wanted to be the firstborn but wasn't, wanted to have all the blessings and didn't. He was a, he was a cheater. And he had to be broken as we saw. His hip had to be put out of joint and all that. The lesson here is God wants you to align with his purposes for your life. Not to decide where you want to go, what you want to do, where you want to shop or whatever. God wants you to align yourself with his purposes for your life. And then worship. It, it's interesting. Uh, it speaks of Jacob as he was dying, worshiping as he held on to his staff. One of his last things he did, even though he couldn't hardly stand up, is having aligned his purposes with God, he worshiped. Worship is not a means to an end. Worship is an end. Worship is the fullness of knowing God and allowing that fullness to, to, to come out your mouth, your heart, your body, your posture, 
God wants you to align with his purposes and release your faith by worship. And finally, Joseph, pretty simple. God favors those who walk with him. That's what Joseph did. He walked with God, loved God, sought God. And just one of these men that was so favored that even secular people, so to speak, looked at him and said, man, I don't know what it is, but I'm hiring you. And I don't know what it is, but you take care of everything. I'm going to go take a nap. It's just a wonderful thing. That'll look different in everyone's life, every different person. But we see in Joseph, God favors those who walk with him. These five men, these five men, what a relationship with God they demonstrate. And as we come over into the New Testament, we know Christ has died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the Father, poured out the Holy Spirit so that we can have a relationship with God. And one day, as we saw in Revelation 21, we will actually be with our God. He will come to us, tabernacle with us, bring us to himself. God walks with man in Genesis. So I want to take a minute to pray now for you that you'd be that same person, knowing that you are, are maybe not an extraordinary person, you don't have an extraordinary education perhaps, but you can know God. You can walk with God. God can be the one, like these men, when, you, when your heart is not for his stuff, when your heart is not for things, but when your heart is for him, the stuff just happens on the side. But it's having that heart for God, you know, the night I got saved, um, I was the pastor's son. I, you know, I, I'd been in church, you know, most of the weeks of my life. I'd been baptized and confirmed. But I didn't know about a relationship with God. And then when the speaker began to talk about knowing God and knowing Jesus, having a personal relationship with him and Jesus living in your heart, I was flabbergasted that I never understood that. But it's all about, as they used to say, not religion, but a relationship with God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.